morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone Laney Hampson, welcome to our show, Talk Out of Schools, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, nationally, and across the world. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My guest this week will be Dr. Randy Grobe Zachary, the CEO and co-founder of Insights for Education, which recently put out a new report analyzing school closures and reopenings in 191 countries amid the COVID pandemic and what patterns and conclusions we might be able to draw for New York City schools. But first, the latest news. With the goal of achieving more transparency, the city released new school-specific data on the COVID positivity levels from the random testing of students and staff, showing they remain quite low at 0.15%. However, citywide rates are still increasing and yesterday reached 2.5%, with a weekly average of 1.7%. Most of the schools in the COVID hotspots have reopened, except for a few in the red zone in Brooklyn, where community rates of infection are still high. The mayor announced he would finally make sure that all homeless shelters where students are living will be connected to the Internet so they can participate in remote learning. But this was only after repeated articles in the media about the problem and the threat of a lawsuit. But the biggest shocker is that on Monday, the mayor released figures showing that only 280,000 children have shown up for in-person learning instead of the half a million that they'd suggested earlier. Also angering many parents, The mayor and chancellor said that families would only have one more chance to sign up for in-person learning for their children during this school year, instead of the multiple times as previously promised. The sole period parents can sign up will be November 2nd to November 15th on the DOE website. With infection levels predicted to rise through the fall and winter and then possibly falling again in the spring, this is a very poor time to force parents to make this sort of commitment. On another issue, we're very concerned about the fact that New York City and other school districts throughout New York State have acquired all sorts of digital learning programs whose privacy protections are unknown, and some of them we believe may violate the state student privacy law. We have a survey that we'd like parents to fill out to find out what programs and apps your kids are using. You can find the link at New York City Public School Parents blog, and we'll also put it at the podcast site. Now I'd like to bring in Dr. Randa Grobe-Zachary, CEO of Insights for Education, a Geneva-based nonprofit research organization that recently released a report based on data from 191 countries analyzing what factors guided their decisions to reopen schools or keep them closed after the first wave of COVID-based closures. Dr. Grobe-Zachary, are you here? Yes, I am. Thank you. This is Randa Grobe-Zachary. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your terrific report. As I just said, the report looked at data from 109 countries in terms of factors that guided their decisions to reopen schools from February 10th to September 29th, 2020. What sorts of data did you have access to in your analysis, and were there countries that were not included because you couldn't access any information about them? 
Um, thank you so much. It's a very short introduction to, to who we are. We are a relatively young foundation that is committed to improving evidence in education decision-making, and that brought us serendipitously to COVID. We try to do this by synthesizing and translating relevant evidence to help leaders solve their toughest challenges in strengthening equity and outcomes, and COVID presented itself as one of those critical challenges. To answer you about where the sources came from and if any countries were excluded, we have been tracking 191 countries. We have not excluded any country for which data was available over the seven-month period since February 10th, and the data has come from a combination of sources. Case data, COVID case data, has come from our world and data, and school status has come from UNESCO. But on top of this, our own team has been analyzing rigorously ministry reports, media reports, country response plans, and anything we could find in the media and in the press. And our methodology is based on simple observational reviews of the data, clustered by features that we judge to be relevant. So we have not, we have not shut the study to anyone, and it's not just a study. It's actually tracking that is daily updated on our site at education.org. What we prepared that you have seen and referred to was a six-month look at the beginning of October, but the information is updated daily if anyone is interested. Right. We're going to include a link to your country-by-country um, country tracker um, on the podcast uh, website so that people can, can look at it as it changes over time. It's particularly useful, I think. Uh, your report also pointed out that though 125 out of 191 countries have reopened their schools since the initial wave of closures last spring, nearly half of the world's primary and secondary students will not return to school this year, most of them from low-income countries. Which countries are we talking about, and is there any attempt in these nations to carry on all sorts of any sort of education remotely? So we are speaking mostly about low-income and lower-middle-income countries. Um, and for example, this includes India, this includes Ethiopia, um, among many also in Latin America. The, there are definitely widespread, full-hearted attempts for remote learning. But as you can imagine, the effectiveness of those types of distance learning are very highly varied depending on the country and their um, pre-existing digital connectivity and distance learning uh, situation prior to COVID. There definitely are attempts, and I can share a few different types of attempts that might be interesting to you and your listeners, if that would be okay. But yes, some of these, for example, India that has uh, quite a number of primary and secondary students um, and other countries, uh, low and lower middle income make up this category. However, there are also many middle-income countries whose countries are whose schools are only partially open, and they also contribute to this number. And so let's focus on the uh, continent of Africa. According to the chart in your report, of those African countries which are not on vacation, 13 are fully closed, the schools, 11 are fully open, and 12 are partially open. What sort of factors determine the decisions of policymakers in, in, to, for to pursue those three different um, solutions? Was it different levels of community infection transmission or the resources that were provided schools? What sort of uh, differential inputs went into those decisions? You know, it's, it's all of what you said and more. So first of all, the good news is that as of today, there are even a few more countries that are fully open or partially open than there were three weeks ago at the time of this report coming out. So that's going in a good direction. 
but there are very different considerations. Community levels of infection certainly are one, but we also have to be aware that the, how can I say, the uniformity of countries reporting their testing capacity is not equal. So even though we have these global numbers, we probably recognize that in many countries we're probably seeing lower cases than are there. I don't think that will surprise anyone. But while the community infection levels were one factor, as you said, resources were critical. So what were the resources available to ensure a safe reopening? And yes, that of course includes the possibility for good hygiene and sanitation. Many countries did not have sufficient sanitation in place to ensure a reopening, and that was a big area of investment for many low-income countries. Uh, but also um, teacher availability. This also required resources, and in many countries, they had to recruit additional substitute teachers or expand the base in order to maintain distancing and safe uh, passage of students between classrooms and during breaks and so forth. So resources were definitely one issue. And how did they choose to handle this differently? In many cases in low and lower middle income countries, much more so than in upper income countries, we saw the staging of opening by specific levels returning first. What I mean in plain language is that in these low income countries, it's much more common that countries opened one or two grade levels first or just those in the exam years rather than opening the entire school at once. And that seems to have led the way for gradual opening, putting measures in place, acclimating the community both in and out of the school. And many of those schools, those countries are now fully open, have opened all levels and children are there full time. But those are the types of choices they made. And the biggest question was, we must go back safely. How do we prioritize our resources so that no one misses out in the end? Could you, could you give the name of, of some African countries that you thought uh, did a really good job in carefully planning and, and, and phasing in uh, students over time safely and well? Yes, sure. And actually what's interesting is that um, many, many African countries more than any other continent, reopened their schools, started to reopen schools before they reached the peak of their first wave. Let me just say that again. They were very unique, and there was some skepticism in the, in the global community because they were returning students before they hit the first peak. And there was a concern that maybe that was reckless or too soon, and would that lead to a disaster and explosion of cases? And overall, that was not seen. So some examples of countries, uh, Cote d'Ivoire is one example. They actually returned all at once, and they did see continued increase. Sierra Leone had a very different experience. Sierra Leone, who had tested their ability to respond with earlier Ebola outbreaks, uh, responded to this in a very cautious way. They returned first exam year students, the students at the end of their primary school and at the end of their secondary school. And they tested those students, and they prepared them for exams, continuing to test them. And even those who tested positive could return for class and exam if they were kept together with other positive students. And they only had a handful of positive students in the end. It was not a significant increase. But now they have fully returned. So that entire reopening process uh, happened over the summer, concluded in early October, and they gradually then opened primary, all of secondary, pre-primary, and so forth. And that was a great example of caution, 
of creative partnerships with the private sector for testing and other measures, uh, and also a very good partnership with the teaching community. Uh, let me also add that while the teachers were not back in school, the education ministry uh, the, from, from the government sponsored and promoted, invested in, really, professional development for those teachers while they were not in the classroom. They were having uh, development in their own skills and capacities that could be supportive both for distance and in-person learning. So they were investing in the resilience of their system while they were figuring out how to cautiously and safely return students. And I love this example because, of course, many cities in the U.S. are very different than a Sierra Leone in many ways. But what we can learn from that and other great examples around the world of innovation can really help specific cities and districts find their way back to. I think it's worth sharing and hearing to have fewer and fewer assumptions and anecdotes lead decision-making and instead to really promote both evidence and experience as a tool for informed use. It's very impressive. Are they continuing to test students and staff um, in, 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 the, in that country for COVID, or is it, I, was it just um, an initial period? I know that students and teachers are prioritized for testing. Uh -huh. I cannot tell you if they're routinely continuing that at the moment, but I can tell you that, and this has happened also in, in uh, some countries in Europe as well, that even those countries that have not systematized the, te the testing of everyone all the time, school personnel and students have been prioritized in the line in countries where testing is not widely available. Yeah, that happens here in New York City. Uh, uh, students and teachers get priority in the line when they show up at the testing centers. And so, uh, but that is an inspirational example um, for sure. Now, the WHO announced that the COVID outbreak was a pandemic on March 11th. And the report says that by March 31st, 96% of the 191 countries had closed their schools either fully or partially. But six months later, after the initial wave of closures, 125 of these nations had reopened their schools, either fully or partially. About how many schools fully and about how many partially, and what do you mean by partially? Is this mostly hybrid learning as we have in New York City, meaning students will cycle in and out of schools and, and do remote learning when they can't be in school? Or does that mean, depending on the specific district or region, of the country doesn't mean partially certain grade levels or types of students um, are allowed in school? The simple answer, and then please allow me to elaborate just a bit, is that partially is everything you just described, and that's a limitation. Mm -hmm. It's a limitation of the way data is collected today globally, um, and perhaps also at the, at the national and district level. In this instance, partially, we've used the definition that UNESCO has applied, which is probably the simplest. There are very good reasons for keeping it simple, but it does imply it could be geographic, so certain communities are kept closed because they're hotspots and others are open. It could be by school level, as we just discussed a few minutes ago about only allowing certain grade levels or categories to return, or hybrid, as you just said. There is no distinction in the way countries, um, and this is at the country level, there is no distinction in the way they're asked to report it. Perhaps we will become more granular at that. And to think this experience is showing us that we need to be better at collecting more quickly and analyzing and sharing 
and being more detailed in what we collect. And by the way, one might ask, why doesn't our site and why doesn't this report go into more detail in the U.S.? Uh, and I would love to just share that that is because there had not been any detailed reporting at the district, state, or county level until recently. What we have available is the national level data only. And doing anything more detailed would have required individual tracking of every state or district without having the infrastructure in the U.S. to manage that. It is wonderful to see that in the last weeks, finally, a number of groups have stepped forward and said it must be done. We must be able to understand what's happening and the consequence of our decisions and also be able to look back at the end of this and understand what worked and what didn't work. So that collection has been very critical in helping to understand what is happening, back to your question, Leonie, about partial opening. If you, you asked me about the number of countries, how many were open fully and, and partially, because of this big mix of mixing pot of definitions in this partial category, we don't think it's helpful to just shoot that number out because it doesn't tell us a lot. But we can tell you this major trend. From the beginning in May and June when schools started to open, most countries opened gradually. Most began with some type of either hybrid or grade level staging. Very few opened fully and all at once. And that's important because there are still many countries that remain closed who have not yet gone through that first opening process. And we do see that partial opening can be a gateway for being ready for fully opening. Interestingly, although on the other side, we do see many countries that are what we say in their second wave or beyond, even in the third, depending on how you define wave. And most of those countries went back, they, they reopened partially earlier and gradually. They went on their breaks for summer or whatever season they had. They returned after that often to higher cases, but they opened fully again. And they remain mostly open fully, even though we see many countries having higher rates, and I think you may want to come to that later, but I'll let you take us there, we do see that nearly all of those countries have kept their schools open. They have given the authority for schools now to make their own independent decisions based on a school situation. But nationally, we are not seeing at all the same level of national closure orders. And that's very interesting for, for everybody in the world that has anything to do with schools. So, yeah, one of the major conclusions to be no consistent 